data is the new oil. And we know that more and more data is going to the cloud. And as we have data, you can apply artificial intelligence and things can become more intelligent. You can make become more efficient and et cetera, et cetera. That is reflected, for example, when you look, what are the projections for the cloud? The cloud is projected to grow indefinitely. People say this is going to grow at plus 35% year over year forever because you're going to have all of this data that's going to the cloud. Well, somebody needs to get the data to the cloud. And that's what we do. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show, so if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, my call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. I went to high school here. My parents live here in Carmel Valley. And That's where so, I live. Oh, you do? Yeah. I grew up on uh, Delmar Heights, like by Ashley Falls, right across the street from Ashley Falls. I am uh, very close to the Delmar Heights with Carmel Valley Road intersection. I used to be, well, they moved, but I was at Wingate. You know where that is? Like, no. Literally across the street from Ashley Falls. Very close. Yeah. So it was a good excuse to have some mom's home cooked meals last night. So I appreciate it. Awesome. All right. Well, yeah. Welcome to the show, dude. Thank you. Very happy to be here. And thank you for coming to San Diego. I feel like I'm in Fort Knox. I love it. It's a pleasure to be here. And welcome to Qualcomm. Thank you. How big is this campus? Like, where does it spread out? I can see another building behind you. We have a number of buildings. I don't know from the top of my head, but we have been building in Sorrento Valley since the beginning. I've been hopping around those different buildings as I moved to my career, but uh, yeah, we like it here. So you've been in different buildings as you've gone up? Yes. And is this the building you're in now, or is this just where we're recording? Oh, no, that's the building I am now. This is it. I graduated to this building. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, look, I start all of these things the same way. So I'm going to read your background back to you. I'll probably screw something up. If and when I do, feel free to correct me, and we can use that as kind of a launching off point. Very good. So you got your... BS from, I can't even pronounce it. What's the name of the school? It's from my hometown Uh, in the state of Sao Paulo, Brazil. It's uh, Unicamp. And then you got an honorary doctorate later in life from the same school. Is that right? That is correct. Okay. And then you joined NEC, moved to Tokyo from Brazil in 1992. You spent about four years there. As the story goes, you were visiting San Diego as a partnership on behalf of NEC for Qualcomm. They ended up recruiting you to come out here right? It's true. Then it's been four years, but okay. yeah, but my first... Less than four or more than four? Less than four. Okay. I started my career at NEC and they transferred me to Tokyo. That was actually the first time I left Brazil and went to move in Tokyo. That was a great, I think, personal professional experience. And I stayed there a little over a year. As part of NEC, I came to San Diego. That's what I met Qualcomm and Qualcomm made me an offer I couldn't refuse and I joined Qualcomm 1995. As an engineer? As an engineer. And then again, correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm already on a hot start screwing things up, but you spent a few years as an engineer at Qualcomm originally? I've been, you know, started Qualcomm as an engineer, I think, uh, you know, moved to the engineer ranks and then became a manager and then a senior manager and then so forth and then uh, became CEO back in June 30th, 2021. And in the meantime of you becoming a CEO, I read that you went to a VC 
there was a time that I left Qualcomm. Is that right? Uh, yeah. So there was a time in my career that a couple of things happened. I left Qualcomm for a period of time. I've been Qualcomm for probably about 27 years now, 26, 27. I stopped counting it. But there was a period of time, which is a, around the, the 99, 2000 that I left Qualcomm. I did a couple of different things, which I actually wanted to do. I, and I, I'm very grateful I did that. It, it served me well in my career, gaining a lot of experience. So I joined a VC and that was the time there was a lot of investment in telecom. There was a VC focus on investment in telecom in LATAM, which I like. Since I, you know, I came from that region. And then when the dot-com bubble burst in the 2000, there was a divestiture of a lot of the investments. And one of it was, it was an operator that used to be a joint venture with Bell Canada that went to a process of uh, bankruptcy. And they needed a management team to go do the restructuring. And it was back in Brazil. So that's what I did for about three to four years. I went back to Brazil and I was first CTO, then later was the COO of the operator. And uh, it was quite an adventure. You know, you have to do restructuring and we worry every month we're going to make payroll, yeah. going to make taxes. And then when we got to positive EBITDA, it got sold. And then Qualcomm asked me, are you, do you, want, are you tired? Do you want to go back? We want you back in San Diego. I rejoined Qualcomm. That is around the 2004 timeframe. And I've been in Qualcomm since then and have no intention to go anywhere. I got to ask you on the VC thing, like you kind of had your pick of the litter of a bunch of different companies, but you picked seemingly the problem child, the bankrupt one. How'd you end up choosing that one? You know, at the time, we were a minority investor. At the time, there were a lot of things that pointing that that would be the right investment. But then when you have the crisis, some regulatory challenges, and the main operator left, that was about Canada, then it became a distressed asset. At that point, I did have my pick of the litter because I did want to go learn and get experience doing restructuring. And, uh, you know, I'm telling you, if you can uh, survive a restructuring in Brazil, you probably learn a lot uh, through the process. And, uh, and I think I achieved that. You rejoined Qualcomm in 2004? Yeah, originally I joined Qualcomm in 1995, yep. and then I left Qualcomm for a short period of time. I rejoined Qualcomm in San Diego in uh, 2004. As the president? No, no, no. I became president only in 2018. Uh-huh. When I rejoined Qualcomm in 2004, then in the first year, Qualcomm had a lot of different investment in telecom operators. I had that background from my experience in Brazil, so I kind of... Uh, Spend time with an investment we had in the United States, investment we had in Indonesia, in trying to find you know an end stage to some of those investments. I think we sold them. Then I spent a lot of time for Qualcomm with an operator you probably remember, Nextel, the part of Sprint. There was a big debate at the time whether they are going to use CDMA technology or not, and I was uh, leading the CDMA camp on the Qualcomm side. And then when that got completed in 2005, Qualcomm asked me to take on the CDMA business on the semiconductor side, which is the chip business. And that's what I built most of my career all the way to president in 2018. I grew up in San Diego and I had no idea that Qualcomm stood for quality communications. I'm probably the idiot, but I had no idea. I also had no idea that it's a Fortune 105 company with 45 plus thousand employees, market cap of close to 170 billion. It's a sneaky giant. <laughs> Does everybody else know this? And I just don't. Well, a lot of people don't know Qualcomm means quality communications, but uh, it's true. All of our products are high quality products. And for those that don't know, myself included, can you give the 30 second, like what does Qualcomm actually do? What Qualcomm is doing today is when you think about the future of our economy, when everything is going to be connected to the cloud, 
Qualcomm is going to be the company that's going to provide the advanced connectivity for everything, not only phones, but the billions of devices out there, providing high-performance, low-power computing and artificial intelligence to everything. That's really what we're set ourselves to do. So what we do today, you know, I'm sure you heard about Snapdragon, which is our processors that go into smartphones and go to tablets and all of that. So we're doing a lot of the computational, the connectivity for all of those smart devices. And now we're taking that technology to automotive. We're taking that technology to the internet of things and powering billions of devices. So since you mentioned about a couple of things about Qualcomm, you didn't know, I've been uh, from San Diego. I don't know how much you know about that, but one thing that it's remarkable and we're very proud of it in the company in the very short period of time, we're now working with 26 or maybe 27 now of the global automotive brands. Qualcomm's become one of the largest suppliers of technology to the automotive industry. And in all the brands you can think of, I'm sure it's including that 27 list. We're providing, connecting the cars to the cloud, providing the processor behind all the different screens in the car, when we call about the digital cockpit, and even now assisted driving and autonomy. So... We're the company powering phones, tablets, cars, and now all of those different things that you see in the Internet of Things from consumer electronics to Peloton bikes to drones. And this is all done by Qualcomm. There's a lot in the news today about chips. I was so excited to sit down and talk to you. And there's the Chips Act that came out. There's like three articles that came out today on it. One of the things that I was reading was that, and again, you tell me, we went from 40% of semiconductors were being produced in the U.S. to now less than 10%. And there's a lot of ramifications to that. I don't think I've even heard the word chips until like the last couple of years. What the hell happened? Like, why is it now in the general zeitgeist? And what's your perspective and view on this all? Oh, it's a great topic of conversation. Let's start from the beginning. The reason everybody knows about chips, and as being part of Qualcomm, I'm very happy that's the case, right? But the reason everybody knows about chips is because... When you have the chip supply chain crisis, like the, you have more demand than supply for the past couple of years, people realize that chips are in everything. There's nothing you can buy that will not have chips on it. Whether people could not buy cars, people could not buy appliances, they could not buy, of course, computers, anything else. So we got to the point that the overall society understood the importance of chips and the importance of chip companies, which is a great thing for a company like Qualcomm. But the reality is semiconductors are today a critical ingredient of our economy. And as such, there was the realization once you have the supply chain crisis, and there's a lot of things that caused the supply chain crisis. I'd be happy to go into that. But once you had the supply chain crisis, there was the realization that we need a very robust and resilient supply chain because without chips, you can't produce most of the things that are produced today. And I think that's what, in essence, what has been driving the U.S. Chips Act, the EU Chips Act, combining the United States and Europe, it's $95 billion of investments in building semiconductor manufacturing. And the key thing is, can we build a supply chain that is not only resilient, but also geographically diversified? If you put the geopolitics aside, like let's not get into the geopolitics, but just to think a natural disaster alone, 65% of the total production of semiconductors in the world and 70% of that total goes to American semiconductor companies are made out of Taiwan. And the reality is it is on everybody's best interest, including our partners from Taiwan, that you actually have geographical diversification. And I think that's what the U.S. Chips Act 
and the EU CHIPS Act are set out to do. And it's a great thing for the industry. I couldn't agree more. I mean, people started freaking out when they couldn't get a sofa delivered to their apartment. Then things escalated when they couldn't get a car delivered to their house, right? And so over and over again, we continue to see how it acutely impacts someone's life on a day-to-day. And then people started giving a shit. And all of this comes down to the conversation we had when you asked me about what's Qualcomm do. What we saw with this is everything is becoming connected. Everything is becoming intelligent, whether it's your appliance, whether it's your exercise equipment, of course, your phone, but then your car, everything is becoming connected, becoming intelligent, has a lot of processing, and that's driving a lot of opportunities for chips. And that's what drove the situation we had. I have a weird analogy for you. Like, I've never even thought, why is Silicon Valley called Silicon Valley? But it's because of companies like this and the semiconductor industry that got it going off the ground. And one of the thoughts that I had was a lot of people in my world talk about how data is the new oil. And my question is like, all right, if data is the new oil, then like is Qualcomm kind of like the shell in this world? Like, are you going to be the superpower that charges? Because we talk about the cars. We don't talk about the things that actually move it. Does that make sense? Let's elaborate on that topic because there's something I believe and I have been saying. And it speaks to what is the role of Qualcomm into the future? So let's go build on what you just said. Data is the new oil, which is true. And we know that more and more data is going to the cloud. And as we have data, you can apply artificial intelligence and things can become more intelligent. You can make become more efficient and et cetera, et cetera. That is reflected, for example, when you look, what are the projections for the cloud? The cloud is projected to grow indefinitely. People say this is going to grow at plus 35% over a year forever because you're going to have all of this data that's going to the cloud. Well, somebody needs to get the data to the cloud. And that's what we do. By connecting all of those billions of devices out there, whether cars, everything you have in your home and the enterprise, It's enabling the data to go to the cloud. So I'll argue Qualcomm becomes essential to the future cloud growth that we have because of everything we do outside the cloud and what's called the edge. And that's kind of the role of the company. That's why we've been talking as the future strategy company is we're going to be powering what we call the connected intelligent edge. I've heard you compare this business to the gladiator business. That's true. I think it's a great analogy. Can you say why? See, the opportunity and the challenge of the tech industry, especially a company like Qualcomm, which were the forefront of innovation, we're driving the pace of innovation in all of those different sectors. You have to always reinvent yourself. It means that if you're successful today, that doesn't mean anything whether you're going to be successful tomorrow. You have to constant reinvent yourself. You can't become complacent. You have to be pursuing the innovation treadmill. And I make that analogy with that we are in the gladiator business because it's a highly competitive market. It's highly disruptive. And it's all about what is the innovation that we have today and then what's the innovation tomorrow and so forth. So it's like in the gladiator business. If you're a gladiator, you go to the Coliseum and you have three possible outcomes. You can win, you can lose, or you can both lose. And then if you win, all that you achieve, you got to go to the Coliseum one more time. It serves as motivation that we have to constant be innovating and never become complacent and uh, be in great shape. That's what we need to do. 
<laughs> what a brutal industry. That sounds fun, but also terrifying. I got to ask you some personal questions. There was definitely some gladiating, if you will, that preceded you in the last five to seven years. Pretty much every like difficult thing that companies could go through, I'd say Qualcomm experience, lawsuits, activist investors, blah, 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 blah. And you weren't the CEO at the time. You were the president, second in command. And you weren't taking most of those bullets. The CEO, Mollenkampf was. Did you ever pause and say, shit, do I really want this job? I love this company. You know, I've been with Steve during those times, living through each one of those challenges. But I think how we have dealt with this and how we succeeded and how we continue to reinvent the company and grow speaks to the quality of this company and the quality of the people of this company. What is interesting about Qualcomm is we're a company of just people. We don't have factories. We're fabulous. We don't manufacture any of our products. We always been the largest fabulous semiconductor companies. All that we have is people. And it's the people that in the middle of the some of the biggest crisis that we have is the people that brought 5G to the world one year ahead of schedule. And it's the people that have been driving new technology that always been defining the pace of innovation and mobile during all of those fights. I think that's what's great about this company. And I hope it'll never change. 100%. I'm wondering in Brazil, what was the first job you ever had? Like if we rewind from Cristiano making it to this building at Qualcomm in San Diego at the Pinnacle, like what was the first time you ever got dollars handed to you for a task? Well, that's interesting. That I need to go back in memory lane. But I remember as a kid in my neighborhood, you know, I'll always do things to get money. So I will, I'll make kites and sell them in the neighborhood. I remember when I, I needed money to go travel and I was in high school. My mom will get upset. I'll fill up the refrigerator and the cooler with a bunch of sodas and water. And I'll go to places that are super hot and be out there with a cooler trying to sell those things. And I'll sell at a premium. Huh? So I'll, I did. I, that's how the first time I got to try to earn money. Oh, and then in college, I will do silk screen of different T-shirts with different logos. And I'll sell. So I sold all these shirts from my electrical engineer school. So I did those things when I was a student. But then uh, last year of college, I got internship at the utility company. And that was actually my first pay job. And it was an interesting experience when, you know, I graduated electrical engineering. But it was interesting because I always wanted to work in electronics. And that's what I built my career. And of course, communication, radio communications. I always love radio communications. But my father was an electrical engineer. And he was in the traditional electrical engineer talking about power plant generation and distribution of power, transmission of power. I found an internship that I could do both. And it was, it was very interesting. Brazil had a lot of small hydroelectrical power plants and they needed to go to a process of automation and design electronic circuits. They automate the plant. So that's what I did, my internship, going to all those different power plants. And that's how I got my first paycheck. And then after that is I started my career at NEC working in cellular. I've heard, tell me if this is true or false, that you make it a point when you're not traveling to have breakfast with your family, wife and three kids, I think. Was that something that you did with your family growing up? Like, was breakfast a thing? Or is that just a thing for you now? No, it's a thing for me now. It's just because I'm a simple person. I really cherish the time with just with my wife and kids. And the job puts a lot of her in, in your time and how much time you have available for a family. You know, I work late hours. It's hard to guarantee we're going to have a family dinner. So at least we can have a family breakfast every day. And that's kind of the solution I found. And it's kind of a new thing. How much are you traveling? I'm super curious. More than I wanted. But I think there's a travel coming back. 
I'm actually very happy with that. I'm a people person. I think there's a, it's hard to replace face-to-face interaction. And because the company now is expanding so fast everywhere to different industries, we have to build new relationships, whether are within the automotive industry, with retail, with healthcare, with industrial and so forth. And as part of this, I've been traveling a lot to get to know those companies, get to know those industries and build relationships. So I say a little bit in the order of about 50%. 50%. It's funny because when we were getting ready for this, the team was like, anything we should know. I said, yes, I insist on doing it in person. And they said, great, we weren't even going to sign up for this unless you did it in person. Christiana is a big believer of in-person meetings. And I said, I am too, which then the downstream effect of that is I'm probably on the road two to two and a half weeks a month. Does that get tiring? Sometimes. And you're uh, like, I'm not going to, you're going all the way around the globe. I'm usually domestic. Yeah, sometimes you have to factor that into your routine. And the key thing is, uh, you know, you have to sleep, you have to take care of yourself, and uh, you have have time for your family. So you just needed to find a way to balance. I'm failing miserably in that work-life balance, but uh, it's still a goal that I'm pursuing it. One of the things that I do when I travel and I'm going into a different time zone is no food on the plane until I I land and I have a local meal because that starts your clock, your body clock. Is there anything you do that are like, you got to get a workout in or something before you travel or you just go for it and open up your laptop? I just go for it. I just go for it. I read something that called my attention. I I read something in in a restaurant once that said, eat when you're hungry, sleep when you're tired. And I think that's a good system, but it doesn't always work. I think that's fair. The way that you talk about the business is very unique. It's very different than the ways that other leaders that I've had the opportunity to talk to speak about kind of their orientation towards a long-term thing. I don't know how else to say it, but when you talk about the business, it's in two-year and 10-year increments. Most people don't think of it that way. And I was wondering, is that because you've been at Qualcomm so long and so you've just seen every single cycle? Or is that just a unique function of the way that this business operates? So let me give you an example, since I mentioned about the Gladiator business before. But when we think about our flagship mobile product, our Snapdragon 8 series, which is being powering the premium smartphones today, it's powered all the Galaxy product lines, the Fold and everything. So from concept... When we think about what the product is going to look like, what a type of capabilities, what are the use cases, what are people going to do with their phones, from concept to the time that we actually go into full production, it's a four-year cycle. So four years ahead of the market, we need to have a very good guess of what the market is going to be. It's a very high stake because if we're wrong, you consume billions of dollars of development and uh, you miss the cycle. So that, I think, forces us to have the ability to think long-term and think about what are the key technology trends, what are the problems we're trying to solve, and then how do we apply technology to solve those problems. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is it's unique to the Qualcomm culture. You know, Qualcomm has, I think, part of our DNA and what made us successful since the startup days of the company, it was to think big in some problems that needs to be solved with technology. And some of those are going to be a decade long and be able to execute to that. It's what put us in the position to have a little bit of a build the future. 
And you can look at what happens, for example, in the cellular business. Every generation of wireless is a 10-year cycle. You expect 5G to last 10 years like 4G did before that. So it's a combination of things. But maybe the simple answer, it's kind of what you said. It's just the, the nature of the technology sector, especially the one that is very high on innovation, that you have to try to not predict the future, but you have to invent the future. Yeah, and I think to your point of not predicting but inventing, like you all are doing the prerequisites to what the future will look like. Like if you don't do your job and deliver on the chips that we need, as an example, like we're not going to be able to have the self-driving cars that we want to have in the timeline that we want to have it. Is that fair? It's fair. And that speaks to, I think, the reason a lot of our you know employees get motivated to work in Qualcomm, because you know that what you're doing is going to change the society. And just go back to mobile. Think about what we can do with our smartphones today and how much that changed the world. It's incredible. And I think that's true for all of those other areas that we're investing in building solutions. So as you plan ahead, give me some rough timelines here. How far are we away from me showing up from my parents' place in Carmel Valley, getting here and not touching the steering wheel? Like how far from a technology perspective are we from that actually happening? I think we have to be thinking in incremental steps, right? I think we're very close to have a mass scale of highway autopilot and what we call like level three, level three plus autonomy, that you'll be able to touch the wheel, but you're still there. It's assisted driving. You'll be able to have a full highway autopilot. Full autonomous, I think from a technology standpoint, you can argue when maybe five years or 10 years away because it's complex is a little higher. The way I see it is it takes you a certain period of time to get to the 95%, but the extra 5% is going to take a lot of time and money. All the edge cases. And then the issue is also it's a complex regulatory environment. Here's another way to, to think about the full autonomy. It's in our nature. Humans can make mistakes. You know, you can make a mistake and you get a car accident. Corporations are not expected to make mistakes. For you to get to a level of reliability and perfection of the systems that the driver doesn't have to be, not even be, no steering wheel in the car, I think we're probably maybe five to 10 years away. However, I think it's wrong to think about autonomous driving, just thinking about the day that you're just going to the back seat, taking a nap in the car is going to take you to where you want it. But how can we actually make a zero crash using assisted driving and make that in every car? Like one of the things Qualcomm is doing with our ADAS and autonomy platform is it shouldn't be a, only for premium cars. Every car should have it. Like ABS uh, brakes and airbags, you should have assisted driving. And if it's not, you know, a full level three plus, uh, you know, a level three or a level two, that you have the ability to minimize accidents. So even if you're behind the wheel, the car is always watching and the car is taking action in situations that you could be making a mistake. And I think that's the big opportunity. And we're very close to see that in 2025 in a number of different cars. It's interesting you say like the steering wheel thing, like in some ways, don't you want to remove the human from the equation? Like doesn't the person introduce a little bit more variability? Like isn't the computer just going to be better at some point? Like you think I'll step into a car in 10 years and there won't be a steering wheel? I mean, I'm a bad driver, just to be clear, so I'm probably the wrong example, but won't that be a good thing for me not to touch the wheel? I think it's possible in 10 years, but I like driving it, so that'll be a sad day for me. But yeah. uh, I would say it's possible in 10 years, but I think the combination of the human and the machine, it's a pretty good combination. 
somebody's trying to predict the future with fully autonomy and they're going to say, look, we're, the future transportation is going to be 100% green. It's going to be fully autonomous and we'll be able to get a lot more cars into the highway because we're going to be more efficient and maybe we'll reduce this, the average speed. And I said, well, we may go all back 100% back to horses. That's what a horse <laughs> does. It's fully autonomous. It's, uh, you know, anyway, so I thought it was a... Uh, was a funny conversation, but I think it's an incredible transformation happening with the automotive industry. I could not think of an industry which is more exciting about the opportunity technology. There's a lot more than autonomy. The car is being connected to the cloud. When the car gets connected to the cloud, you think about a car is going to distribute gaming content. It has information. It has telemetry. There's a number of different stakeholders that are going to get information from the car. Your relationship, for the first time, the car company is going to get to know you because he's connecting with you. The car has a digital twin in the cloud. Then every single screen on the car is going to change and you add autonomy. So it's an incredible opportunity for technology. I think the automotive sector is super exciting right now. Speaking of cars and great ironies, you are a sports car buff, but the cars that you love have zero technology in them. They're like old school cars. Is that right? I love the cars from the 70s, like the muscle car from the 70s. Maybe, look, I was born 1970 and I, as a kid, I look at cars, it was an interesting car, I'm sure I have my matchbox cars and I fell in love with a lot of the muscle cars from the 70s and the early 80s. So that's what I like, so I've been kind of uh, slowly getting a 76 and a 75 car restored, but yes, they have no digital technology, everything is analog. You're not driving those to the office, are you? No, no. Maybe they remind me of so much potential we have in the automotive industry bringing a lot of digital. Well, what are the places that my mind went, and again, maybe I'm connecting dots that don't exist, but I had the the founder of Okta on the show. And he was talking about how it's a ritual for him to go to hockey with his buddies at like midnight on Thursdays. And he would drive a car that was really nice in the beginning. And then over time, he actually like got like an Explorer, something like very just like generic normal car. And the reason that he was articulating why he did that is because it took him away from everything else in his life. It was his only solace of normalcy that he could have was just like hockey with the guys where nobody treated him any differently. For some reason, again, my brain goes weird places, but I kind of thought about that with you where it's just you in the car. There is none of this other work stuff. There's none of this other technology stuff. You do that all the time. I don't know. Do you ever think about it that way or is it just a freaking well, I'll, car? I'll have my phone with me. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. It's just a car. You just enjoy it. I just enjoy it. Speaking of cars, Mark Fields is on your board. Is that true still? That is correct. I'm reading a book, the American Icon book. It's incredible. When I saw that, I was like, oh my God, Mark's on the board. So cool. Yeah, he's a great guy. That's so cool. Okay, I have one more technology question for you. Yes. How far are we, ish, give me like decades from the Star Wars hologram that you know, I'm here and there's a hologram of you in front of me. Is that like even, is that even going to be a thing? Oh, let's talk about this because I'm very passionate about this. So I'll take from the beginning. Okay. So we think in terms of what are the mainstream computing platforms? So you can go back to how personal computers started, right? The PC was the first like large scale computer platform and we use them today. Then that changed to smartphone. The smartphone became mankind's largest development platform. That's what it is today. And it's an inseparable device. It doesn't replace the PC, but you know, all of us have our smartphones and we know they're capable of doing. So we think in terms of what is the next big computing platform? 
If you look at the processing power plus the ability to be connected to everything, like with 5G, your smartphone is 100% of the time connected with the cloud and you have unlimited computing, unlimited connectivity to anything you want. Clearly, there is a limitation, which is the size of the screen. So is the next computing platform going to be fully immersive augmented reality glasses? Yes, I think so. And I think that's what we're working on. We're working on... And it's a decade-long project in enabling, you know, what we call XR, you know, virtual reality, augmented reality. So now, now let's talk about the technology. Where are we with the technology? So let's think about use case. So right now, let's say that you get to a form factor that look like my glasses right now. Because humans won't use a big helmet. Humans will use something like this, like a regular pair of glasses. So let's say that I have cameras in here. I have the ability to also sense as I talk, my voice, muscles in my face that move, and I have a bunch of different sensors. So it is not that far-fetched. It's not a technology limitation that I will be able to sense and render an image of me talking in the cloud. At the same time, you could project with augmented reality a superimposing of images somebody else's that being rendered. So you and I can have this experience that we're having face-to-face that I could be seeing a hologram of you and vice versa. And I don't think it's now an impossibility for a technology standpoint. We do have a couple of things that need to get better. We need to get to display technology because we're going to need like 8K display on each eye and needs to get very, very small. Optics needs to improve. And we have been working to bring a lot of processing power with very tiny power because you don't have a lot of spaces to put processors in connectivity and antennas. But I think this is one that we may be five to 10 years away from having a fully immersive augmented reality glass and that's going to create a whole new suite of possibilities. So, And you think the form factor is glasses. You think that's going to be the way that we consume that technology? I think so. Maybe we're going to go to phases that you're going to have, you know, a glasses companion of your phone. And then eventually glasses is the next computing platform. And what are some other like real life use cases that like, let's like, what else? How can I use that? So let's talk about things I'm sure people are going to say. Some of them will say it's great. Some things are going to say it's not great. Right? Sure. But let's just play with it. Let's take an can example. we avoid the not great? Because those are just pessimistic. Those yeah, are but just let's naysayers. say, for example, let's say I never met you. Yeah. Right? So, so I have my augmented reality glasses. All of a sudden, it sees your face. And it go real time to the cloud and search Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook and say, this is this person. You have you met this person before. Here's the connections you have. You can learn everything about your environment. Same thing. You can look at something. You may choose to have information about anything that you want. Now, think about now, take this to education. Incredible potential of how you change education. Take that to an enterprise, how you do training. Let's say you need to do work, your technician, you need to do work on an engine. Your glasses, as you look at an engine part, will tell you, remove this. This is what you need to do to remove it, replace this. Go to the digital twin of the connected car and say, this part has wear and tear, replace this one. So it's endless. I think the way to think about it is it's about eliminating the screen size limitation 
of your phone and create a whole new set of possibilities. And I think that's what leads to this conversation about the metaverse. Really, the metaverse is about combining physical and digital spaces. The way I describe it, how the metaverse is going to develop, everything's going to have a digital twin. I can, could have a digital twin of yourself, a digital twin of a thing, of your car, or anything else. I think with glasses, you'll be able to make the connection between the physical and the digital space. Does everything need a digital twin? Like my car. Absolutely, your car needs a digital twin for sure. Tell this me why. This is like not even debatable. Think about a car maker having the connection with your car. And when your car gets delivered to you, you have a picture of that car into the cloud. And as you drive, that picture gets real-time updated from what's happening. What do you use more of the car? How is the car? The car was designed to run this many kilometers in this situation. This is exactly how you, you use it. And a simple thing is predictive maintenance. A digital twin will tell you when it's time to replace something. A digital twin will provide a feedback on the car design to say, maybe you don't have to design this thing this way. You design that way. And then think about all the digital services that you're going to have. The other thing is a digital twin will learn about you as a driver. And then you can have a more personalized experience to you. I, I think it's incredible potential. I'm excited. I'm stoked. That fires me up. Is there anything about the CEO gig that surprised you? And I get it. Like you get more responsibility. That means more impact. I understand that. But was there anything that you just didn't see coming when you took the job? Well, it's not that I didn't see coming. I, I probably have unrealistic expectations about time demands. There's a lot of time demands on the Qualcomm CEO. And I think maybe it's part of the current stage of the company as we are reinventing ourselves, expanding. But uh, time demand is a very big issue. Your time demand. The, the yes. demand on your time. Yes. Yeah, okay. I probably set unrealistic expectations. Uh, yeah, it's going to work out. I can, I'll have as much time as I needed, but, uh, you know, you have to make uh, some choices. The other thing is, as I became president in 2018, I've been running the semiconductor business of the company. I've been hopefully preparing to the possibility of becoming the CEO. But one thing that uh, it was not a surprise, but it is hard, is we're trying to transform the company. And I go back to the conversation you and I have. You said, I'm from San Diego and I, and there's so much you knew about Qualcomm. We're at a point that everybody look at Qualcomm and they think this is the company that has a licensing business and provides a chip to cell phones. And the reality, there's much more to the company. The company is really the connected processor company for the future of the edge, the intelligent edge, which will enable, you know, a future cloud economy, all the things we talk about it. So it was more challenging than I originally thought to change the perception of the company, but we made a lot of progress. We continue to execute on our new diversification strategy. I have to be patient, but, you know, eventually we're going to get the recognition we deserve. You have this expression that you use a lot that I absolutely love. And it reminds me of myself that you say we're in a hurry. We're not impatient, but we're in a hurry. Can you explain that, especially relative to the concept of time? Yes. Uh, and it's <laughs> it's funny that you ask that. Why is it funny? It's interesting. We're doing a lot of stuff. And the reality is, is because the opportunity in front of us is tremendous. Right. We don't want to miss it. So that's why we're in a hurry. We have incredible opportunities in front of Qualcomm. Maybe I'll just list them real, real quick. It's 
continue to do what we're doing in mobile, which is smartphones, incredible device, continue to set the pace of innovation. We're just the beginning of the 5G potential. We have the whole transformation of cars, next generation personal computers as we enter the PC space with Microsoft, virtual reality, augmented reality devices. We're working to bring 5G as a replacement of fiber for broadband. We're working to transform connectivity into the enterprise. And we're doing robotics and smart retail, smart healthcare to all of the industrials. We have all those opportunities. We don't want to miss it. It's one of the biggest opportunities in the history of Qualcomm since we started. I truly believe the best of Qualcomm is yet to come and we need to execute on all of it. It's funny, I had an all-hands meeting that was about a couple weeks ago, I think right after our earnings, and I opened for questions. I, you know, anybody can ask any question. Uh, you can submit them online. One of the questions was like, aren't we doing too many things, right? We're doing all those things. And uh, I provide the answer, which has, it's uh, something that I saw once and I said, well, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think I'm going to use that. It was something that a very famous American NASCAR car racer said, Mario Andretti, I believe it was Mario Andretti. He said, if you're in a race, you're driving fast and you're in full control of the car, you're not fast enough. And I think that's the things that we need to do. We're in a hurry because we have a lot of opportunities. Technology transition is happening. It's not going to wait for anybody. And uh, it's for Qualcomm to do it, to take it and become the leader of this connected intelligent edge. Dude, I'll tell you on a personal note, when I hear you talk about the business, you have a huge grin on your face from ear to ear. Like It doesn't feel like a job when I talk to you. I don't feel like I have a job. And that's kind of the best like privilege I've ever had is I don't feel like I work. Now, the problem is that gets me into a lot of trouble because I never feel like I'm working where really I'm always working, you know? And so I'm always in a hurry to do things because I love the things that I do. Do you feel the same way? I do. Look, I, I love this job, but more than the job, I love this company. I love the people of the company. So one thing that you realize, especially when you have a very bad work-life balance, is you spend most of the time of your life with the people you work with. It's like my extended family. And that's uh, the motivation I have to come to work every day to make sure I don't let the Qualcomm folks down and we continue to be this great company and do great things. Yeah, I fall more in the Bezos camp of work-life harmony, not work-life balance personally. That's a good way to describe it. I, I think I learned something new. Good. So you said like, hey, Jubin, when I am hungry, I eat. When I am tired, I sleep. When your time has been crunched too much and you feel like the spectrum of priorities has swung too far, then what do you do? How do you create space again? How do you like chill? How do you like get away from some of this stuff and realize like, oh shit, I just spent way too much time working. I just loved it too much. Uh, don't don't have yet a good answer for that. <laughs> it's a work in progress. But uh, yeah, sometimes when I feel that it's overwhelming, you know, I'll try to do something else. Uh, like I go work out, I go out with my family. And what's a signal of overwhelming for you? Like, what does that feel like internally? Like, is there something where you're like, that's a trigger? For me, I'll get short, like I'll get impatient. And I'm like, oh my God, I am not a good person right now. Like I need to step away from things. No, I'm not like that yet. Good, uh, good, uh, good, good. <laughs> good. I don't know if I have a good answer for you. I feel there has been a couple of situations that I feel there's a lot going on. I just needed to pause rethink everything. And I usually write those things down and say, what's really important? And those are the things I'm going to do today. And, you know, it won't happen that often, but it's a good mental exercise. I was with the CEO of Google Cloud, Thomas Curran. 
organization is almost the same size as yours. Call it 45, 50,000. And the question that I asked him, as I said, TK, like, do you ever get nervous about self-awareness in the sense that there is a lot of people that work in your sphere? And I even said, like, you're going to get off this podcast. And is anyone going to tell you, hey, you didn't do a very good job today? Do you ever worry about being so insulated as the big CEO of Qualcomm that you don't actually get the feedback loops that you need? Does that ever cross your mind? Not really. I do spend a lot of time. It's maybe a different answer to a different question. I do spend a lot of time connecting with the business. Usually on Fridays for me is like no travel day. And we have a lot of meetings that we go into a lot of the technical details and maybe it helps because of my engineering background. The thing that I worry is I can... I think as a CEO, especially in a business like Qualcomm, needs to be very connected with the business. So I worry about making sure I'm spending enough time to be connected to the business, but don't have that concern that you highlighted yet. <laughs> All right, that's fair. Last question on the engineering thing, because you brought it up. You're an engineer by heart. Would you consider yourself introverted or extroverted? Uh, I don't know. Does it give you energy being the spokesperson of the company? Does it give you energy doing things like this, being the front man? Or is it sometimes just like, I really don't want to do this today? No, 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 no. I, like, I, do you ever want to just I, get, I, in, get I, into the chips? I understand. I think the most accurate answer to the question, I'm extrovert for certain things, yeah. introvert from some other things. I, it does give me energy being be able to speak about, uh, you know, the company, speaking about the things we're doing, communicate with our employees. I believe it's incredibly powerful when you align all of the employees in the company on the strategy. So I usually over communicate. And I think that's an important part of my job. And I don't get stressed doing it. I actually think it's a great opportunity that I have. Well, look, I'm grateful that you were strategically extroverted in this hour. So I appreciate you. I really do. This is special. I always close these things the exact same way. The first is, are you hiring? Yes, we actually hire an incredible, I don't remember the statistics uh, top of my head, but it's kind of in the order of more than 6,000 people up in the past uh, 18 months. Qualcomm is growing and we're growing so many areas and uh, yes, we are hiring. What a good excuse to live in San Diego. It's like the most underrated city in the world. Yeah, and we're hiring globally in all the different locations, but yes, including San Diego. No, no, if I came to work for you, I'd come into San Diego, 100%. Please come. Last question. What does the word grit mean to you? Or what do you think of when you hear the word grit? Hmm. Didn't expect that question. It's actually the only question that I, you were prepared for. <laughs> every, every other question you didn't know. That's the only one that you, uh, yes. that, that you um, knew. I don't know. Things come to mind. Friction or traction, but uh, also resilience. Cristiano, thank you. Thank you. Happy to have the opportunity to talk to you. And thank you again for coming to San Diego. It's my pleasure. Thanks. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple, and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback. So feel free to email us, grit at kleinerperkins.com.